privately offered alternative investments. What are they? What are the risks? What are the possible rewards, including possible tax rewards? And should they be part of your portfolio? Stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. The Retirement Lifestyle Show is back with another episode today. My name is Adrian Nicholson, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Roshan Langani and Eric Olson, who just came back from a conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm really excited to hear some of the takeaways that they got from the event today. And just giving our listeners and viewers some insight today, I understand that the markets have been very crazy this year, and there's been a lot of ups and downs. And right now, you're probably experiencing some discomfort from it. So Eric and Roshan are going to share some ideas that they got from the conference today, just to see if this is something that you should look into and consider, just some new ideas that you can explore today, just to see if they have something here that might be a good fit for you. So guys, I'm really excited to discuss this topic with you today. And then later on the episode, I'm going to share with the listeners and viewers why I wasn't able to attend and some really exciting things that have been going on recently. And I'm just really looking forward to this episode. I hope you guys are too. Absolutely. Yeah, Adrian, we missed you. We missed you out there this week, although you had a, you had a yeah. good reason. Yeah, I had a really great reason. <laughs> and our listeners and viewers will get to hear the whole story later on the episode. But I'm also really excited to hear what your takeaways from the conference were. Yeah, so we were at the uh, 15th RTA Wealth Management Conference, which was great to be at and great to see. I remember when the RTA Conference was just two people, and now we go in there and it's this huge, huge ballroom, so it's great to see. One of the advantages to being the size that we are now as a firm is that we're able to get access to a lot of these different types of investments and we spent a lot of time uh looking into and learning about some alternative investments and uh what i what i wonder is is are they i'll use the term are they back so to speak just thinking that with interest rates being higher uh you know really than they've been since 08 and with what's been going on in, in the markets this year the fact that they've struggled so much is there an opportunity in the alternative space or uh, just from a comparison perspective, is the opportunity greater in the uh, public markets right now after they have, uh, have had a, you know, roughly a 30% decline? So um, let's actually start defining what, what falls in the alternative category. And then Eric, I'd love your thoughts on my question of, uh, of where the opportunity lies, but Time out, Roshan. Man, I can't believe it. You are so modest. Who uh, we we had an award ceremony at the conference. <laughs> who got an award? Who got the one of the very first awards at the conference, Roshan? Do you remember? Eric, thank you very much. I got an award at the conference. I was uh, really happy and made sure that afterwards I got a nice box to pack it. Now. It is still sitting in my suitcase today. I plan on bringing it in the oh, office that right? tomorrow <laughs> and, and putting it up. So, yes, thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate that. If I'm not mistaken, you were advisor number two. Is that right? Advisor number one, technically. Uh, technically, the first advisor with the firm. Oh, okay. Even before the founder. Just because the founder <laughs> and CEO didn't take the advisor title. So if, if he gets number one, then I get number two. <laughs> okay well that works no that's totally that was great i got to i was there at the table wasn't expecting it all and and they started making this announcement and there you go so that is fantastic okay so now that i we've gotten that out of the way russian let's let's talk about your question answer pose the question again because i've completely forgotten what you asked well one other thing worth noting with that is I always skip the last dinner just to because I because it's late and I try to catch a late flight back. So this year I just happened to have not done that. So it was lucky that I was there. 
Glad I was. Eric, why don't you give us just a breakdown, a definition of what fits into the alternative investments category? All right. So I'm going to use for a big circle and then a little circle inside it. So the big circle is anything that isn't a stock bond or cash is is in one sense an alternative investment. So if you said real estate, in a pu- even if it's publicly traded, is a real estate investment trust, I think you could say in one, in one sorry, very broad definition is an alternative investment. So it would be, be commodities and other things of that kind. But for purposes of today's conversation, I want to use a narrower, narrower framework. Here I'm not talking about the publicly traded category. I'm talking about privately traded or privately accessible, uh, for the most part, equity in businesses, then also lending, private lending to businesses. That would be private credit generally. Then real estate and infrastructure. Those four big four categories are where most of the money is in this, in this private world. And then, as you've pointed out in the past, Roshan, there are a couple um, or a number of other more specialized categories. I think we can now more recently add, for example, crypto assets. We've talked about cryptocurrencies and NFTs and things of that nature. And even things that we might overlook, but are really relatively large markets in, in their own rights, namely wine, which I think you pointed out is nearly half a trillion dollar market from an investment standpoint on an annual basis. And then also art, which is not quite a hundred million, a uh, hundred billion, I mean to say, in, in terms of the size of that market investably each year. Yeah. So the general, as you said, is anything alternative. We will go a little bit more into some of these categories as we discuss it here. But so Eric, my question though, uh, that I'll, I guess I'll ask you and we can discuss is, is there an opportunity there now? Just thinking that rates have gone up, you might be able to get some better deals than you could in the, in the past because of that. Or is the opportunity really in the, if we're comparing now, granted, you don't have to put all your money in one thing, or is there a greater opportunity in the equity markets right now after they've declined, you know, 30%? Do you have any, any thoughts on that? What, where, where do you think as an investor, you have a bigger opportunity right now? In terms of the deployment of most of your capital, I would say the, the public markets are certainly, an, um, are, if not yet, are soon a very attractive place, or at least much more attractive than they were in late 2021 to deploy capital. I would also say just at a policy level, I would normally in, encourage people to think in terms of having the majority of their investable capital that is deployed. That There may be times when it, it's called for to have some of your, your investable capital in cash to keep some powder dry and wait for the next opportunity. But just as a general policy, I would say you, it's not probably appropriate for most investors to have a majority of their capital tied up in these illiquid private investments. So on that basis, I would say uh, answer number one is, is it's more, t- it's more opportune now in the public markets than it was. But e- even aside from that, generally speaking, I would have a majority of people's capital allocated to public markets anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I definitely get that. And you hit on a very important, uh, point the illiquidity factor when you're investing in these alternative investments and um uh just one of the examples you mentioned eric was lending money to businesses well if if you have a if you've given a loan to a business that's a 10-year loan and you know three years in you want your money back that's not typically an option so it ends up being illiquid or at least if there is an option to get your money out you're usually taking some kind of hit in order to get that money out. So it, it wouldn't be for all of the, all of your capital in, in either or. I was more thinking um, rates are up, so you may be able to get better deals in alternatives, but stocks are down, so you may be able to get better deals in, in stocks. And better may not be the word to use. You can get good deals in both. Uh, where, where do you think the greater opportunity lies? So, But you bring up another important point, though, from a portfolio perspective as a whole, uh, I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm, if I'm mistaken, 
but having some money in the in the alternatives make sense and you view them as almost two different buckets like out of your overall portfolio this portion goes to alternative this portion goes to to public markets so that you're not necessarily comparing one versus the other i think that's right although i do think of them as an integrated whole at the portfolio level let me just say say this and, and i'm not saying this because i have to i'm saying this because i believe it I don't believe that private investment is appropriate for all investors. I'm, I'm, I'd even maybe go one step further and say it might be the case that it's not appropriate for most investors. And as a result, it, it, the, the, the decision to include private investments or these private alternatives in a portfolio is one where probably you should look at that closely with somebody who's, as, as an advisor, I know this sounds self-serving, but as an advisor who has some experience with alternative investments to be able to help you arrive at a, at a well-informed personal decision as to whether or not alternative investments of a private nature make sense for you. Having said that, I do think that over the long arc of the last, let's say, 20-some years, if you look at the contribution that private investment can make and has made to clients' portfolios, what you see is, is that while at an individual holding level, there are higher risks in so far as you're now, you have a more concentrated investment potentially in something that could go really wrong and, and really disappoint you. The, at the same time, if you look at the aggregate outcomes from private investments, they have a they act differently than public investments. Public investments, as we know from very recent experience, can have a significant swing in price in a very short period of time, whereas private investments, that's less likely to happen. Uh, and not, not, they're not immune from that, but they're, it's less likely. And secondly, in aggregate, not the individual level, but in aggregate, the, the evidence seems to be that private markets offer a premium for their illiquidity. And as a result, the, the overall returns to those in aggregate are higher than the private market or than the public markets, I mean to say, in aggregate. And so for that reason, I think uh, as a policy for some investors, it's really useful to have a, a judicious allocation to this asset class uh, in, in a way that limits the risk from any single deal, but does incorporate the potential benefits of different behavior and higher returns from a, a well-diversified portfolio of these investments. How about you, Roshan? Yeah, yes, Eric. I mean, you're really touching it right here where there's a lot of components that go into these alternative investments and a lot of things that you have to consider with it. So the planning process and just to see if a certain alternative investment is suitable for you, is uh, really important to really exhaust all the possible outcomes and all the possible scenarios on how this should fit for you or shouldn't fit for you is really important to consider. And then how we touched on it earlier, how if it is something that is a good fit for you, just to see what, how, what role is it going to play in your portfolios? Is it going to be something that's going to help you diversify more? Is it going to help what how is it going to play an important part in your portfolio to help your overall plan is really how this breaks down. So I really appreciate you expanding on that, Eric. Well, Roshan, you might be thinking I'm dodging your question, and I'll, I, maybe I should just <laughs> acknowledge that I did sort of go to the general response as opposed to the specific response. I do agree that the fact that interest rates are higher right now makes some of the private equity deals a little bit harder to pull off these days. Because now, if you're a, many of them use a process known as leveraged buyouts, if they're having to pay more for uh, the the bank credit or the you know the other sort of institutional credit that they might obtain to augment your capital, if they're paying more for that, that does mean that it does squeeze out some of the potential return that super easy money was offering them. True. I was actually thinking the opposite, though, thinking about the, uh, the debt side of the market, right? Because you mentioned something important, actually, the, the liquidity, the illiquidity premium, meaning you get paid a little bit more 
because your money's not liquid. Well, on the debt side, you should be able to get higher rates now, and then you add on that premium. So there may be opportunities as a lender where you can get better rates than you than you have really since 08. So I think when you had mentioned that they're private equity, private debt, and then we, you'd mentioned crypto, I, I think um, you just look at these different spaces and you see, well, where is there a better a better opportunity now? And that's where I think there that the interest rates may have created an, an opportunity. Now, I did ask that question at the beginning uh, in the context of comparing the current equity market state versus the private uh, space. And you've got another thing that you'd mentioned, Eric, was you've got the volatility in the public markets that you tend to not have at least to the same degree in the private markets. And I'm just going to explain that further. If you go out and lend your money to Microsoft and you ha get a public bond, well, that bond has a new price every day and multiple times a day. So the, you put in $1,000 that you lend to Microsoft, they may be paying you 3% over 10 years. So you're getting that money, that 3%, but your $1,000 value is going up and down. Well, in the private space, just because they're private, you're not seeing the volatility in that $1,000, uh, at least not multiple times a day. They will, uh, they will get updated values and so, so on to the portfolio, but it's definitely not that's the same degree of volatility. So that's a question of volatility. And I think you've also got to look at how you define risk. I think versus volatility, the definition of risk is more what's the likelihood of loss. Well, in the same example, if you're lending your money to Microsoft or lending it to private company XYZ, even though you'll see greater volatility in that loan to Microsoft, it's probably a little bit of a safer bet there just because they're such a large company versus a smaller mid-sized company you're lending your money to, which is why you get a premium as well. I agree with that. So that's an interesting point. Your view is, is that, if, if I understood you correctly, that higher interest rates should make the appeal of private credit uh, stronger because now private credit has to offer a higher rate of return to induce people to turn from public credit to private credit. Is that, did I understand you correctly? Correct. Yes. Hmm. So I, uh, that's interesting. I had, I, I suppose that that's, that, you know, that makes sense because it is a, you're competing to attract capital. And so maybe that induces it. It does strike me, though, that the structure of many alternative deals and, and uh, if you're listening to this and you're going, what is he talking about? The structure, when someone goes out and let's say buys, let's use real estate, they want to buy an office tower. And let's say it's a billion dollar office tower. They'll typically borrow from a bank about 60 to 65 percent of that. In other words, you know, in this case, if it's a billion dollar tower of 600 to 650 million of that will be money borrowed from a bank. When interest rates are super low, that's great. Then they've, they've covered roughly two thirds of the cost of that building for a really, really low un underlying interest cost. And that makes the rest of the deal all else being equal. That's an important caveat. All else being equal. It makes the rest of the deal then have more of the overall potential profit from that from that decision to purchase that building and then lease it out and so forth and so on. Maybe make improvements, maybe flip the building. It makes more of the benefit of that have flow to the remaining 35% of the deal rather than the 60, 65% of the deal that's the bank. On the other hand, if the interest rates that are being paid to the bank now are higher because generally speaking, interest rates in the environment have gone up. That means all else being equal, that there's less to be uh, of the of the benefits to be reaped by the 35 percent. That's the non-bank part. And so on that basis, it seems to me that, again, all else being equal, it does put some pressure on the on the opportunity for private credit to take part in that. Because what is private credit? Actually, private credit is actually not in the kind of usual sense of it. It's not a bond per se. Most of the time what it is, is it's something that is referred to as mezzanine debt, meaning it's equity-like. The bank looks at it as equity-like, but within the structure of that 35%, it's 
given some preferences in terms of the, the order in which capital would be returned if something didn't go as planned. Right. And Eric, but that's just comparing that one type of deal, right? There are companies that do other types of borrowing that's not associated with real estate that might be for working capital. It, it might be for an acquisition, but um, where there aren't those other competing debt components that will take away from, from you potentially lending to them, right? Where you as a lender can just get a higher rate. Okay. That's a fair point. Yeah. So if you're saying in, in it's now somebody who needs more capital, the bank is only willing to pay them so much. Now they have to go out and obtain the balance from private sources. And, and so as a result, they've got to raise the offer in order to induce that capital to flow to them is what you're saying. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's a fair point. All right. Well, good. Yeah, there, there, and there are plenty of types of alternatives, and I agree with you, though, that there are some where the higher interest rates will likely lead to lesser of an opportunity for some, some, of, some investors. I think you had wanted to cover this topic. Does it make more or less sense right now, given this environment, to invest in it? Your, your sort of final takeaway, I've said I think it's all else being equal, it's slightly um, less advantageous to take advantage of private uh, investments now than it might have been a year ago. How about you? I, I I would give you the same answer a year ago as I will right now. It depends on the deal you're looking okay. for. Right. Okay. That's every, really every that. market's a good market for something and a bad market for something else. Beautifully done, Roshan. Thread the needle. I love it. Don't answer the question. <laughs> well, but I, I think I gave the answer earlier when I said I think that it, it is a good opportunity for some uh, in the debt space. Good. Okay. Right. No, that's fair. That's fair. So in terms of some of the applications, we talked about a number of things that we learned at the conference. And one of those, one of those applications we talked about was how to, how to take advantage of this category from a tax standpoint. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, actually one more thing I wanted, can, can you review with us? You had gotten reviewed that white paper about returns. Can you share with mm -hmm. us some of that information first, and then we'll move on to the Roth conversion aspect? Yeah, sure. So in terms of um, one of the presenters at this uh, conference was, um, maybe I shouldn't name names, so I mean, <laughs> they don't want to be named, but they, they offered one of, the, one of the charts. Yeah, I, I'm just going to go ahead and cite them. Uh, it's a group called Hamilton Lane, and they do a lot in the category of, of private investment. And they showed something that was running from 2000 through 2020. So I'm going to describe, not show this time because I haven't gotten permission to show. Um, but the, um, what, they, what they showed was a graph that illustrated what has taken place in public markets using public market equity across the world and how have returns flowed in, in public market equity across the world. So Let's use 2000 as an example. In 2000, the return uh, for overall, this is by vintage year, money invested that year, um, had a forward return of about 3 or 4%. It's, I'm eyeballing it because it's on a chart. And over time, that has steadily increased. And money, uh, the returns to, to money invested in, in uh, 2020 wound up having a banner year and that was somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 20% return in terms of that, uh, that the forward outcome, but internal rates of return to, in this case, we'll focus on of those four categories. I talked about private equity, private debt, real estate, and infrastructure. If we look at the first category, private equity and use something known as we'll call that by it's, it's more, um, specific name, a buyout strategy, buyout strategies, internal rates of return to investments launched in 2020 had globally at the deal level, not necessarily at the investor level, but at the deal level, something in the neighborhood of a 40% internal rate of return. So not quite twice what was happening in the global public market for equities. And similarly on the debt side in 2020, um, uh, the Credit Suisse leveraged loan um, index showed a return of about 10, 
but pri- private credit internal rates of return were in excess of 20% in 2020. And that sort of relationship of, of private credit and private debt exceeding public markets returns has been, has been a constant feature going all the way back to the beginning of this chart in 2020 or in, 20, uh, in the year 2000. That's a little bit of a mixed picture in real estate for a few years back in the late um, aughts. And then also similarly, uh, a little bit of a mixed picture in the infrastructure comparison between private and public. But on balance, if you'll, especially if you look at the last decade, it's hands down, the private side has outperformed the public side. So those are some of the, you know, when we, we talk about that, those are some of the instances in which you know, we can say, all right, well, maybe this makes sense to keep, uh, put something like this in your portfolio. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd want to dig further into that data um, just because I'd, I'd be curious as to see um, how much of an area it covered. I'd only make that point because when you're dealing with this private space, uh, some of these funds can get fairly concentrated. So uh, my point being, uh, if you're getting fairly concentrated, you need to be careful with what you have. Because what we're looking at is what the average thing has done. But there, there, there definitely have been um, investments in that space that have taken, you know, taken a loss. Uh, and if, if that losing investment was a big part of your concentrated fund, it could, it could, you may not have seen those numbers. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, I have some scars and cigarette burns from, uh, from deals that I was part of that go back, let's say a decade or, or close to a decade that um, maybe started out looking really strong and then didn't end well at all. So I completely agree with the point that you're making <laughs> that uh, you, need to, you need to make sure that you're not over-concentrating in any one of these things. It's the, it's the diversification element that makes those median or, or sort of average returns that I was just talking about um, more characteristic of your outcomes. If you load up on something, you could be at one end of the spectrum or the other probably, you know, at, either super delighted you had concentration or not so glad at all. For sure. And, you know, Eric, I had said some of these funds can be very concentrated. Uh, to be a little bit more clear, there are some deals which are single asset deals, right? So, so when I say what, what that means is you get a, a fund where you can take, you know, 25,000, 50,000 and you're split up into, you know, 100 different uh, deals, whereas you can take that same twenty five or fifty thousand and buy a fund that only invests in one thing. And by one thing, I mean literally, like using housing for for example. I have seen investments where it's literally one uh, apartment building where you that you're invested in. So uh, you've really got to look at where is your money actually going in the alternative space, and are you diversified at all? Um, like if you, if you said, Hey, I'm going to put $25,000 in the alternative space. And then you put it in this one fund that invests in one alternative, one apartment building. Well, you didn't put 25 in the alternative space in general. You put 25 in one apartment building. Yeah, no, no. Let's, let's talk about that. I think you're making a really good point. So let's talk about first the, the aggregate comparison between these, and then let's talk about risk control measures for, for a listener who's thinking, yeah, maybe I should have <laughs> some uh, private equity or private debt or real estate or infrastructure piece in my portfolio. So if we look at rolling 10-year distributions between 1990 and 2021, and we'll see rolling 10-year distributions in the S&P 500 as an example that are concentrated in that 5 to 10% per year category. That's, again, from 1990 to 2021. And... Although there are instances where you've had rolling 10-year returns that um, have been as high as 20%, but you've also had rolling 10-year returns that have been below 5%. So it's, it's a mixed bag, it, uh, just like is true also in private equity. But if you look at sort of the center point or the central, central tendency within all of that, it is, as I just said, over that 30-year period, the rolling 10-year distributions month by month by month by month 
you're looking at somewhere in the 5 to 10% area. In that same 30-year period, private equity had its highs and its lows. Its lows included some rolling 10-year periods that were below zero, but it also had some rolling 10-year periods that were in excess of 25. The median, though, is somewhere in the 10 to 15% area. And so as a result, roughly, roughly speaking, about five in this 30-year period, roughly about 5% stronger on a rolling 10-year return basis. So you might say, okay, well, then it's a no-brainer. Let's do private equity. Well, as you pointed out, Roshan, any one deal can go wrong. And so when I talk with clients about how much of a, a portfolio should we consider allocating, if at all, to this or that project, especially if it is, as you pointed out, Roshan, very concentrated in one sort of thing, an apartment building or one project or this or that. My usual counsel is, is let's think about it like this. If you lost it all in that particular project, um, what would be the amount that you would say you're indifferent to its, its disappearance? And, and of course, every client's going to have a slightly different answer to that. But I would say in general, my counsel to clients is to think about probably not more than 2% of your investable assets in any single project or any single in any single deal, if you will. Why? Because if it does go completely wrong, 2% is probably not going to be the thing that makes or breaks your ability to live the, you know, and accomplish the financial goals that you had held, had held out for yourself. 2%, it's, it's not fun to see it disappear, but it's also not consequential in the big scheme of things. We see in the last few days or last few weeks, We've seen movements in the S&P 500 on a daily basis that have well exceeded that 2%. So, you know, in that sense, that permanent loss of 2% of your capital on that one deal is probably not going to be a deal breaker. Your thoughts about that? Boil it down to the individual level, like we mentioned earlier, I think is really good. Outlining the risk and the possible return is just a good starting point. And that's I mean, like we mentioned, all these private funds, these alternative investments, they're all different. So if you find one that you're maybe not comfortable with the risk component of it, look at another one, just consider another uh, one that might be better for you or even better, just diversify across a number of them to just smooth out the ups and downs of it. So definitely agree with you on that, Eric. Yeah, and Eric, I like the approach of what you're investing in this space. Are you willing to, uh, willing to lose? and what percentage is that of the portfolio? Two um, percent is not a not a bad number, but like you had said, for some people, they'll say, "No, I'm not willing to take that kind of risk at all," and then they put nothing right. in the space, which is okay. Absolutely okay. Yeah, I think I think our 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 discussion today is not pro or uh, anti alternative investments. It's more of a discussion of well. This is a space that's available to you that you know you probably don't hear about very much, and uh, with that being the case, is uh, is there a place for it in your portfolio at the moment with what's going on in the current market environment, with risk tolerance and, and so on? So I think going through performance is definitely important. And when you went through some of those numbers, you had said you know in the ten to fifteen percent neighborhood, you're seeing that th there is that premium you get for illiquidity. But diversification is still very, very important. The next uh, thing that we that that I want to move on to is just in general. This was a, a topic of discussion uh, of Roth conversions in general for our regular listeners. You you might be getting tired of us talking about it. We've talked about it so much this year, just because there's a great opportunity there with the with the markets being down. Can you convert at lower valuations and then? get the recovery on the other side. Uh, and Eric, uh, you were going to discuss alternatives in general as uh, being used for the Roth conversion. Will you share that with us? Yeah. So a lot of times the way in which a Roth conversion is approached is as follows. I have some money in my IRA. I sell the things I've invested in. I now have some cash. I move the cash from my IRA to my Roth. Once it's in my Roth, after I've paid the taxes on that converted amount, I then go ahead and invest the cash that's now in the Roth. And from that point forward, all of the growth and all of the subsequent distributions, I'll never pay taxes on that money again. What if you, instead of moving cash over, you could move over an, inta an intact investment? 
Well, that, that might be appealing, but it might be especially appealing if you knew that given the nature of that investment, that it had an artificially low uh, valuation at one predictable period of its life. Then what you could do is to say, all right, I paid, and I'm just going to make up a number now. I paid just $10,000 for this. I paid $10,000 for this investment. I know that two years from now, it's scheduled to be more or less $4,000. That would, and, and I know that it's scheduled and barring some, something that goes awry, that's just part of its normal life cycle. It will be in four years, it'll be back to 10,000. And in six years, it'll be 15,000 or 20,000. Some number, let's just say 20,000. Wow. If I knew it was going to follow that sort of pattern to pr- pattern behavior, I would be waiting and ready to pounce uh, at that two year mark when it, in its scheduled uh, value of $4,000 was, was, um, was released and at that moment, I would then move the asset from the IRA to the Roth, pay taxes now on a asset I paid ten grand for, but is now four grand. Pay taxes only on four thousand converted, and wait then for two more years for it to come back to ten thousand, and two more years to go to fifteen or twenty. Well, now you might be saying that's magical, Eric, but does that exist in the real world? Yes, it kind of does in alternative investments. Why? Because alternative investments, not all, but many, have a predictable period of where they'll initially need to take the amount that they gathered from investors, put it to work before it starts to actually bear fruit. It might be, for example, they go buy some land, then they put up some apartment buildings, then they rent out those apartment buildings, and then once they finally rented out those apartment buildings, only then do they start to get some cash flow. But think about along that journey, once they've bought the land and then have bought the construction materials, but haven't really started to, and they've paid for all the engineering studies and the environmental studies and all the other sorts of things that go into preparing to actually build, how much is that entire investment worth at that moment? That might be the moment when the $10,000 is worth $4,000. So a number of alternative investment providers have said, hey, uh, investors, we're going to help you out. We're going to actually tell you kind of what our expectations are about the point at which this lull in value or this low point in the, in the, in the, um, in the independently measured value of this project would be so that if you want to do a Roth conversion, then that would be your, that would be your best moment to do that. I think that's brilliant. Now, that's not for everybody, but for somebody who's looking to do something like that, if you can have that fairly predictable lull before it starts to all come together and then generate cash flow, that idea works really, really well. Well, I mean, and you had said in your example, Eric, the initial conversion is, uh, is 10000 I'm sorry, initial investment in this example was 10000 correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you converted first and you paid, let's just say, a third in taxes, that's 3300 in taxes. Mm-hmm. If you buy the investment, let it devalue and then convert when it's 4000, well now a third in taxes is only about $1200. Mm-hmm. So you, you save $2000 in taxes on the federal level in that example. Yeah, so that that's where I think that's a that's a really good opportunity. So just a note if you're looking at the alternative space, definitely be thinking about which account you'd want it in and is this kind of conversion strategy something that could be useful for you um uh finally there we had one other takeaway uh eric that you were going to discuss as well which was the semi-liquid private equity space that that's yeah, that's a whole that's a whole new innovation can you discuss that a little bit yeah so until now in this conversation we've made this sharp distinction between public and private but some of the some of the providers or at least the organizers of many of these private equity and private debt opportunities recognize that the simple fact that the minimums in some investments are so extraordinarily high and the risk of individual project failure is also an issue for some investors what they've done is they said could we could we solve for two two problems at the same time 
by creating essentially a large fund of many of these investments. And so what they've done in uh, what we're starting to see emerge, let's put it that way, is a concept known as, in some cases, it's known as an interval fund. And in other cases, it, it has slightly different properties than this, but it's essentially the same thing. It is a, it's a fund in which the minimums can be very low, let's say $25,000. And in, within that fund, just as it true in, let's say, an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund where you have your, your capital is allocated out to hundreds, possibly even thousands of publicly traded companies, in this case, your capital could be allocated out to dozens or even hundreds of private debt or private debt or private equity um, opportunities. As a result, you're not subject in the same way that you might otherwise be if you were making a direct investment into those, into the individual project risks. You're aggregating their risks and taking more of the, the risk of the asset class as a whole. Plus, because it's in this structure, you also have the opportunity. This is the third benefit. So one I've indicated is low minimums. Number two is high diversification. And now here's the, the kicker is that it, there are times in the life of these funds where they let people have an off ramp, even though the many, many projects inside them haven't necessarily come to conclusion yet. So different, there are different structures and diff, different sort of rules that they adhere to about exit. Some it's a regular quarterly exit opportunity. Others, it's no, it's an announced exit, but they deliberately do make these exits. Why do they do that? And how can they do that? Are they selling some of those privately held companies? Or, you know, if it's illiquid, how are they doing that? Ah, the answer is, is that they're admitting other investors in whose cash then they, they are able to use to allow you to get out. And so really someone is just buying out your share and, and then you have the liquidity that you're looking for. I think this is a fantastic innovation. And it's, uh, it's kind of early in this game on some of these. Uh, there's, there's more of them on the real estate side already, the institutional real estate. There hasn't been the same opportunity on the pre private equity side. But with the emergence of these, I would expect that over the course of the next year and two, I, at least as an advisor, will be increasingly using these devices to help clients who don't want to make necessarily an overly large commitment to any single project and are, are put off by the concept of having their money tied up for potentially years. This, I think, makes a really attractive alternative to that sort of an, a, a structure. It does. I'll tell you the one thing I'd want to research. Uh, this information is so new for us that uh, I'm speaking just for me, Eric. I haven't had time to dig deeper into any of these different investments, right? So I don't. I don't know if you've had, but <clears throat> two things I'd want to dig deeper into on on this kind of concept. I do love the idea, but one is uh, how, if at all, can they limit your liquidity? Like, is this something that's a locked in on a certain time period, like? some interval funds are, or is this something that is completely up to uh, management of the fund's discretion? And then the second thing is, what are the fees? I've seen some similar products in the past, and what they've had is additional layers mm -hmm. of fees that you're charged. Uh, and it's not just to create the liquidity, it's just that what they are is a fund of funds. So you're paying their management fee plus for all the funds underneath them that they're investing in. So I'd want to make sure that um, the costs are worth the benefit. Absolutely. And every product sponsor uh, has the right to set whatever fee structure they want. And of course, the uh, people who form these funds also have the right to reject inclusion of those uh, sponsors into their mix precisely because they judge their fees to be too high. One of the products, and I'm not going to mention it, uh, but one of the products that we were looking at, they had said that they had negotiated with the um, product sponsors that there was no um, sort of upside participation that the sponsors would would capture. So let me let me explain that. Put put that in context. That's the con the content comes mostly from the hedge fund world, where historically you had uh, two expenses that you would pay to the hedge fund managers. Number one was an ongoing annual charge 
commonly around 2%, sometimes one, sometimes three, but two, typically about 2% per year. And then any quarter in which they ended the quarter at a new all-time high watermark, the, then the fund managers would get some proportion of that, of that increase above the prior all-time high watermark. Typically, that would be 20% of that. So hence, that arrangement was called 2 and 20. In this case, what they've said is they've only incorporated sponsors who are willing to forego that, the second part of that fee. And so they just have a base underlying investment management fee, no upside uh, share in that, in that gain. I think that's an interesting concept, and that gives clients some idea of a little least, at least a little better idea of what to expect with the with the outcomes. But I would be expecting to see those underlying expenses be still in that probably two percent range, maybe possibly one. And then the question is: is is their overall return profile? Does it justify incurring an ongoing underlying expense of one or two percent? Especially if that you know, just in to acknowledge the cost that we as advisors impose as well. Um, if we're charging an advisory fee that overlays on that, then you you know have to ask when all the fees are taken into account, does it still seem like it's a good contribution to the outcome of the portfolio? I agreed. I like the concept a lot. Could the fees be eating up the historical outperformance slash illiquidity premium? It, I guess that would be what needs to be determined. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Well, it was a great conference, uh, Adrian. We missed you. We missed you there. We mentioned earlier that you had a had a good reason. Do you want to share with everyone why why you missed it? Of course, guys. My brother got married, which was such a great time. A lot of memories were made last week. It was incredible. They got married in D.C. The ceremony went great, and we were all staring staying at an Airbnb, a nice townhome in D.C. So that was that was awesome that they set that up for us. It was a really Great time. The most tense moment had to be when I gave my best man speech. Because like I said, it was my brother getting married. So I was like, can't mess this up. It's got to be funny. It's got to just show why we are the best brothers ever and just share all the memories to everybody. And I spent the whole week memorizing it and I just crushed it. I just crushed it. Everybody was laughing and enjoying it. Oh, man. That part went really, really great. Congratulations. Now the Pressure's on him. He's got to give that uh, best man speech for your wedding in a few weeks. Exactly. And he said some of the lines that I mentioned he was going to use on mine, so I beat him to the punch on that one. So that was that was a good one. So it was definitely a well great planned. Time. I think that's amazing that the two of you did that because I mean, no one has more capacity to destroy you probably than your brother because he's seen you since the get go. Exactly. Six years older, so he definitely had a lot on me, but I. I thought that was really funny when he said some of the stuff <laughs> I mentioned in my speech he was going to use. So that was uh, that definitely shows how close wow. we were. So that was uh, that was really great. And then they also got us all tickets to see Hamilton at the John F. Kennedy Center in D.C. And that play is that play is mm. awesome. A lot of drama, a lot of singing, a lot of rapping, a lot of history built into it. So like I said, a lot of great memories were definitely created last week, and that's what it's all about. Well, I think we need to do the after party um, recording here and have you recite the, the best man speech you gave just to capture it for our posterity. I'm, I'm so burnt out after memorizing it for a week that it's just, it's just not even here right now. But uh, maybe, oh, maybe, oh, I don't believe it, but maybe okay. one day if you maybe one day. <laughs> but uh, it was really great. Like I said, I. Uh, for a best man speech, there's got to be jokes in there. There's got to be memories. There's got to be just, it's got to have a little bit of everything in there. And I pretty much knocked out everything. I didn't miss anything that I memorized mm. too. So it was definitely, it was definitely awesome. I crushed it. And I was really happy about that. And the wedding just went so well. The ceremony went mm. really well. And my new sister-in-law, Kelly, she's amazing. I can't, I can't be happier that she's a part of this family. Mm. Well, it sounds like you really mean it. That's good. Well, I was like, it sounds great. And it sounds like definitely you made the right call with skipping the conference. <laughs> yeah, I definitely wish I got to go there. And I haven't seen Eric since the last conference yeah. we went to. So I was definitely bummed about that. But uh, I really appreciate you guys sharing all that information and all the different investments that are out there from the conference. There's definitely 
a lot to unpack there. But like you said, Roshan, you got to definitely do a lot more research and look a lot more into them just to see where the opportunities are. That is for sure a lot to think about for, for everyone that's listening and that's sticking out with the end. Do your research. It's definitely worth spending the time to look at the uh, investment op- opportunity available, and then you can make a decision whether it works works or not for you. Uh, please give us five stars, like, subscribe, tell your friends and family. Thanks for listening. This has been the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question, or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library, and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.